From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. You're listening to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University and its campuses are situated in the Great Black Swamp and the Lower Great Lakes region. This land is the homeland of the Wyandotte, Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Ottawa, and multiple other indigenous tribal nations present and past who were forcibly removed to and from the area. We recognize these historical and contemporary ties and our efforts toward decolonizing history, and we thank the indigenous individuals and communities who've been living and working on this land from time immemorial. Joining me today are Curtis Chin and Dr. Rebecca Kinney to discuss Curtis's new memoir about the Asian American experience in the Midwest. Curtis is a documentary filmmaker and author of a new memoir titled Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. Rebecca currently works as the Director and Graduate Coordinator for the American Culture Studies Program here at BGSU. She's an associate professor in the School of Cultural and Critical Studies. Her current research is on the redevelopment of Cleveland's Asia Town throughout the 21st century. Thanks for being with me here today. Thank you for having us. So this is for both of you, but you'll obviously take it in your own uh, directions. How did you become interested in writing about the Asian American experience in the Midwest in particular? And I'd love for you to go into some of your own personal experiences that may have shaped your career path. So Curtis, you first as a documentary filmmaker turned memoirs, and Rebecca as an academic researcher into space and place. So Curtis, will you start us off? Yeah, well, so my background first begins in poetry. I went to the University of Michigan and did the creative writing program there. As a poet, oftentimes you write what you know, your personal experiences, so I was just drawing upon that. I don't know if I was consciously thinking that I am going to talk about Asians in the Midwest. I was just talking about myself. And so because that is my experience, that's sort of how it came about. How did you transition from being interested in poetry into becoming a filmmaker? Because I met a guy. (laughs) I was living in New York, writing poetry, having a very perfectly fine life as a poet. And I met a guy who was living in Los Angeles, and I moved out there. And as I always tell people, in New York, it's a great place to write poetry because you're inspired by all the sights, the sounds that you're smelling, you know. But in L.A., you're sitting in your car listening to Ryan Seacrest, and that's... (laughs) not producing a lot of poetry. And so I switched and I became a TV and film writer because that's what people do out in Hollywood. Rebecca, could you talk a little bit about your own trajectory into the current work that you're doing now? Interestingly, uh, Curtis and I apparently are both Michigan alum. Go blue. So I arrived at the university. I'm a first-generation college student. I'd grown up in Metro Detroit as a Korean adopted person. And when I got to the University of Michigan, I was really interested in, in learning about myself and my communities and trying to understand where I came from. So it was really wonderful. I started in American culture there, became an Asian American studies minor. And so really, I sought out curriculum that reflected kind of my experiences as a working class person, as an Asian American person growing up in the Midwest, which interestingly enough, a lot of the curriculum at that time didn't really reflect. So I had yet to see a story that that mirrored mine or that reflected my experience. And so I think 
you know, all writing is personal, even that academic kind. And I think that so much of my work and the questions that I continually seek to answer and ask are really born out of those questions that I've had my entire life of who am I? Why am I here? Why are these other people here? Um, how do we, you know, get to know one another? Those types of things. Curtis, you know, you've done different kinds of writing and documentary filmmaking. And at the beginning of your career, right, you were doing more network and cable television. What was involved with your transition into documentaries, and especially those that do have more of a kind of social justice focus? Well, it was actually a really sad turn of events in my life. I was writing for the Disney Channel at the time, and I get this terrible phone call from back home in Michigan that my parents are in a car accident. Sadly, my dad passed away, uh, and my mom was severely injured, and I had to go back home to sell the family business, the restaurant that's featured in, in my memoir, a restaurant that was founded by my great-grandfather in 1940. So I was back in Detroit for a good six months because nothing in Detroit was moving. Plus, I had to you know clean up the house and uh, make repairs to get it onto the market. And it was at that time that I really thought, well, do I want to just go back to Hollywood and work on you know shows, or do I want to uh, do something that maybe my parents might be more connected to. And so that's when I thought back to the Vincent Chin case, which was something that really influenced me growing up. And I decided to make a documentary. And so that's how it came about, um, really. I was just trying to do a project that I thought my family, my parents might really get into because, you know, they were friends with him. So, so a very personal connection mm. to something that also has a lot of significance to the wider Asian American community. Yeah, my uncle was his best man. I mean, our families were close. So I'm curious, Rebecca, do you think of your own research into kind of in some ways recovering the histories of Midwest Asian American communities? Do you think of that as a kind of social justice work? And if so, kind of how do you approach doing that research and telling those stories? Hmm. That's an interesting question. And I had never kind of I guess my initial answer is no, because I, I don't think I I frame it in that way. And particularly in the last few years, you know, I, I some of my first work right after finishing university was in the nonprofit world and some background in activism. So I think that even the way we think about social justice today in the last few years is, I think, different than than my own personal orientation to it. So I think I think really of my work as a storyteller. And so really thinking about how can I tell my story? How can I tell other people's story? And again, we don't often think about academic researchers as storytellers, but I do think that so much of my work and my research is really engaged in, you know, listening to other people speak, having them share their experiences. And then from what they've shared with me as these gifts of information, of history, of past, really thinking about how can I weave a narrative of a community or of a place. So I'm not sure if that's social justice necessarily, but I do like to think that I am giving both the people that are sharing with me their histories a place to see themselves reflected, whether from a, a narration or from seeing their stories in print, those types of things. A connection between your work that strikes me is kind of really involving your participants in some way in helping shape the story. I wonder if there's any more either of you wants to say about kind of how that is a part of your practice and why you think it's important to involve you know, that it isn't just your own voice, but it really is the voices of the communities that you're telling stories about. Well, definitely in writing the memoir, I had to involve my family. So I had to double check things with them. It's not like I gave them veto power over the book, 
But I wanted to at least confer with them and see, hey, what were your thoughts about this? Because sometimes when you have these conversations with them, they actually jar things in your own memories that you weren't necessarily thinking about. And so I think it's great to uh, solicit the input of the people around you. You know, it's really interesting working on finishing up this current project on Cleveland's Asian American community. And so many of the narrations there that I was able to listen to and hear from folks was people telling me about their experiences growing up in in Cleveland, for example, as, you know, one of the only Chinese Americans or Asian Americans in their classroom. And it's really interesting because for so long, I thought that that was a story of an adopted person. Um, and my, you know, my next project on transnational, transracially Korean adopted folks, you know, frequently recount this story of being the only. And then I realized, actually, maybe this is a an Asian American Midwestern common experience of what is it like to grow up in a primarily black place or a primarily white place and be one of the few or the only Asian Americans. I'm curious, what for each of you is distinct about growing up in Detroit as an Asian American person? Are there ways in which that city and its histories really shapes your approach to your subject? You know, for me, I think back on my family's long history of being in the Midwest, arriving as early as the late 1800s, and how there have been Asian Americans in this part of the country because a lot of the other things that I was reading about Asian American history was really focused on the West Coast, like California or even New York on the East Coast. But knowing my own family's history and how you know Asian Americans had been in this part of the country, uh, that was both exciting for me, but also a sense of mission, right, mm-hmm. to look at that. I do think that there are some unique things about being in the Midwest, but also specifically because my family had been here for multiple generations in terms of the way I approach Asian Americans, or this idea of Asian American, you know, the Chinatown in Detroit, the new Chinatown that I grew up in, the one that was on Cass and Peterborough, was actually pretty pan-Asian. It was first developed by the city as an international district. So in addition to a large number of Chinese, you actually had Indians, Filipinos, Afghans living in the area. And even like, you know, when I uh, went to school in the suburbs, right, you'd always look for the one other Asian that was in your class, right, whether they'd be Korean or Taiwanese or whatever. And so I've always thought of myself more as Asian American than Chinese American because I recognize that, you know, I have a connection to these other Asian ethnicities. And so I don't know if that's because, again, because my family's been here a long time and because I'm not as culturally tied to China, like I don't speak the language, you know, I don't have any relatives over there, that maybe my sense of connection has always been with other Asian Americans, maybe second, third, fourth generation Asian Americans too, because I feel like I have more in common with them. So I think maybe those two uh, themes, right, being in the Midwest, but also being a family that's been here for multiple generations and having Pan-Asian like family members, whether they be Indian, Vietnamese, Japanese, um, I've always just been very comfortable calling myself Asian American. What about for you, Rebecca? So that's an interesting question. And, you know, listening again, listening to Curtis talk, it's these things that I can't Sometimes I think, oh, that's my experience. But it's really kind of this this interesting thing when you have this experience that you think is yours alone. And then you realize, oh, actually, maybe that's part of this larger larger identity of growing up in a place like Detroit versus L.A. versus New York. And I, too, claim a very strong Asian-American identity as opposed to Korean-American identity. And so I think one of the really interesting things about growing up in Detroit is just this backdrop of two amazing industries, both the auto industry and the Motown music industry. And so those those pieces of fabric are, I think, you know, I don't want to speak for Curtis, but I think that those are just kind of you breathe it, you you eat it, it's in the ether. 
And those are very, to me, kind of Detroit, Rust Belt, industrial, post-industrial kind of recognitions that people don't often associate with Asian Americans. And I think that those those things make me feel the most Detroit. I think Curtis and I first met um, for the first time while eating a Coney dog. Um, I'm pretty sure it was at Lafayette. I think of you, course it was Lafayette. I think you like Lafayette. Where else, Where else like, did I think you we, go? We ate Coney dogs and drank burners, right? And so I think that there's just some things that are just very Detroit, and I really love that experience. And so, you know, the joke is, even if you don't work in the auto industry, everyone you know works in the auto industry, right? So this idea that it's just part of our lives in a way that's both good and bad. Curtis, your article in Bon Appetit called Detroit's Chinatown and Gayborhood felt like two separate worlds, then they collided, was recently selected for Best Food Writing in America 2023. Could you talk a little bit about what led you to write about your experience growing up, both queer and Asian, and how it shaped your understanding of both communities and maybe also connecting to your memoir? Well, first of all, I have to say I did not come up with that title. <laughs> That's, the, That's the hot take from the editor, <laughs> <Okay>. the lead. <laughs> um, th- that story is actually as a. Um, uh, I, I don't know if that story is as deep as you want me to answer. So basically, <laughs> uh, one night uh, around seven o'clock, I was at home with my husband. He loves to watch the show called Real Housewives. I don't. But uh, so I sit there with him and I oftentimes will check Twitter and um, someone said, oh, Bon Appetit is looking for essays, but you have to submit your pitch by tomorrow at 5 p.m. So I'm sitting there at 7 p.m. the night before and I just quickly said, "Okay," you know, I just whipped off something literally like in 10 or 15 minutes. Just some idea thinking about like my childhood. It actually was not a story in my book because I didn't I wanted a different story. Right. I want to pull from that. Uh, So um, I sent it over to them. The next day rolls around at 5 p.m. They uh, send out another message saying, okay, we've received thousands of pitches. We will get back to you if we're interested. Seven o'clock rolls around and I get this email. It's a 24-hour email, right, later saying, oh, the email that you sent it to does not exist. So it turns out I sent it to Bon Appetite. (laughs) (laughs) And so I quickly dropped the E and then I sent it over to them and they accepted the next day. And so the the moral of that tale is, uh, A, study your French, but B, um, even if there's a deadline out there, you know, you can always get by, right? Like, let them say no. And so just keep pushing ahead. But in terms of the question of like, you know, it wanted to explore that. That was something I wanted to do with my book in general, right? Because I felt like we're at this moment in our country where we're really looking at racial identity, queer identity, um, religious, all these things, right? And in some ways, it's it's uh, divided our country even more so. But these are necessary conversations for us to have. But I want to figure out a way of, of having these talks in a way that brings us together and not drives us apart. I think, Curtis, your story speaks to the fact that we were raised speaking Detroit French. Okay, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Rebecca, given your own research and personal experiences in Detroit, is there anything that you wish more people understood about the Asian community, Asian American community in the city and its role within the Rust Belt generally? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when I um, when I moved from Detroit, from Metro Detroit in the early 2000s, people were fascinated that an Asian American person was from Detroit. And I think that, you know, a few things there, um, like every community, 
where the Asian American community is incredibly diverse. Anybody who's ever taught Asian American studies or taken an intro to Asian American studies class realizes that the reasons that Asian Americans are Asian Americans have, you know, multiple different reasons for migration, both forced, voluntary, involuntary, over distinct time periods and places. So I think that, you know, Detroit's Asian American community, like Asian American communities everywhere, is really multi-layered in terms of its history. I think as Curtis alluded to for his family, you know, some of the earliest Chinese migrants, for example, are in places like Detroit because they were fleeing racial terror after the conclusion of the building of the railroads in the late 1800s. Some newer migrants, like from Southeast Asia, there's a there's a large Hmong American community in Detroit, came, you know, seeking um, refuge after a war that was really, that they were implicated in because of the U.S. military presence in Southeast Asia. Other populations like myself, Korean adoptees, you know, were a huge part of the Midwestern Asian American community, often invisible. So I think that what's really interesting about a place like the Midwest, so Detroit, Cleveland, the Rust Belt, is that a lot of the Asian American communities there are often less studied, less visible, both in Asian America in general, both in the regional histories of the Rust Belt and the Midwest. So there's a lot of really great communities, people, stories that I wish people would know more about. And so work like Curtis's is really amplifying and telling those stories, which I'm really appreciative of. Curtis, your documentary series, Our Chinatown, focuses on the lives and histories of America's Chinatowns and those who have devoted their lives to preserving those enclaves. How did you approach that project in terms of complicating, adding to existing depictions of Chinatowns? What were you hoping to change about the story that audiences may or may not already know? Well, um, you know, it's... uh, the way you've described it, like it's an active series, but it's really not. It was a documentary that I was um, in the process of making. We were about 80% done filming before COVID hit, and then we had to shut down. And so what I did was I took uh, as much of the footage that I had and turned them into short films, including okay. one on photographer Corky Lee, which um, had a really great festival run, and we're just in the final stages of negotiating with American Masters on PBS to air. Right. So I don't want to overplay that as an ongoing series because it's, I don't want people Googling, looking for it and then realizing, oh, it's just two or three short films. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. Uh, but in terms of the idea of Chinatowns and their significance and what I wanted to do with it is that I think that the history of Asian Americans and most immigrants that first came to this country is a very working class, lower income thing. And they're represented by the formations of these Chinatowns. I think that with the immigration patterns of the United States, particularly in 65, where we started favoring people of, um, you know, college background, maybe more economic means, that's really shaped the community in a lot of ways in the most recent decades. And in some ways, when you look at coalitional politics with other people of color, for me, it's very important to remember that Asian Americans also have a working class background. We came you know what I mean? Um, because we weren't affluent, because we didn't have college degrees and things like that. And so I feel like that that's led to some tension, you know. Um, and I want communities to understand that is the longer history of Asian Americans. I mean, maybe the last 50 years has changed it a bit, right? But no, our longer, our much longer history is one of discrimination, of strife, of living on the margins, of having to scrounge and like be scrappiest as we could, right? 
And so that's why this area is really ripe for me, not just creatively and artistically, but also politically, right? Because, um, you know, I like fighting for the underdogs. So, yeah. You know, one of the things that you're both talking about is that kind of working class, submerged working class history. That's such a part of Asian American history. And it's I want Detroit history too. And Detroit specifically, right? Yeah. I'm wondering how each of you in, in your respective work are thinking about the model minority myth and complicating that story as part of telling that working class history. Is that something you are consciously thinking about? And if so, Maybe, Rebecca, first you could sort of explain for listeners who might not be sure, what do we mean by the model minority myth? And then how, in your own work, are you trying to confront and complicate that story? Mm -hmm. So the model minority myth has actually two different origin points. So previously, kind of the the standard definition and origin really looks at the mid-1960s. So the model minority of Asian Americans really thriving in the face of black protest across America. So this way in which the model minority myth was set up as a way to really discipline black Americans who were protesting in the civil rights movement and also to, to discipline other Asian Americans. I think that some really interesting uh, work is really pointing to the construction of the model minority myth in the 1940s, particularly for Japanese Americans leaving camp, um, leaving concentration camps during the war. Interesting point of Midwestern origin is that you know, as Japanese Americans living on the coasts in California, in Oregon, et cetera, move from the exclusion zone to concentration camps in the interior, very shortly after incarceration started, people were able to leave camp if they were moved to someplace in the Midwest, like Detroit, like Chicago, like Cleveland, because at that same moment, the arsenal of democracies that were, you know, the industrial places in these cities really needed workers. So there is kind of a, a maybe an earlier emergence of the model minority myth, right? So come to these cities, do good work, put your keep your head down, which for many Japanese Americans leaving camp, that was precisely what they did, right? As would make sense given the context. So those are kind of the two origins that we think about for the model minority myth. Um, my work on spatialization, particularly of Asian American communities, is really important and builds on works like Yun Mi Chang, who argues that the idea of the ethnic enclave, for example, is really a spatialization of the model minority myth. Because as Curtis was just alluding to, you know, most um, Asian immigrant communities, particularly that were settling in the late 19th, early 20th century, were places where people were working class, working poor, where there was not a lot of, you know, structures, uh, infrastructure services like education, health. There were conditions of overcrowding. People were really marginalized because of racial discrimination, anti-Asian racism, nativism. But in those same moments that we see in the 21st century of, you know, the celebration of Asian ethnic enclaves as separate and different from, quote unquote, ghetto. So this idea that the the enclave, according to Yun Min Chang, is really this spatialization of the model minority myths set up in juxtaposition to the idea of ghetto, which is usually associated with black Americans or um, Latino Americans. So I, I really wanted to be attentive to that. But did Chinatowns always have that positive um, connotation, or did that switch, like you're saying, in the 40s? Yeah, so that was it was a it was a shift. So historically, okay. no. Historically, I mean, historically, even the idea of Chinatown in most places outside of you know San Francisco and L.A., where there was a really large population, so the Chinatowns in most cities were really multi-ethnic, multi-racial, heter heterogeneous spaces that were you know deemed fun to visit for food and adventure, but not you know. To live in and it, they were often the vice districts so if you look at 
you know, Chad Heap's work work on urban slumming or any, you know, any work on early New York, early 20th century New York, these were often spaces where extra legal um, affairs and businesses and commerce took place and were held and, you know, were considered okay to do. And they were also, you know, often the places with dilapidated housing, absentee landlords, all of which were not because people of color and working folks and immigrants chose to live there, but that's where they were kind of were able to find access to housing. And often restricted to those neighborhoods. Right. Mm -hmm. Curtis, for you, is the model minority myth something that you are thinking about in your work and complicating that story? I don't think I... I mean, I talk a little bit about it in the book, but very, very small. I guess unless you consider being a Republican model minority, because in the book... Uh, and in my defense, this was the 80s uh, when Ronald Reagan was really popular. And, you know, one of the accusations against stereotypes against Asian-Americans is that we're not very loyal to America. Right. So I was going to disprove that. And I was going to outpatriot the white kids at my school. So I became the Asian Alex P. Keaton, if that means anything to you. Yes. Um, and so I was class president, president of National Honor Society. I co-founded the Young Republican Club, the Students Against Smoking. I went to Boy State. I was a total monster. Uh, <laughs> but if that's if that's what you mean, I mean, yeah. So I, I knew that playing that role helped me fit in, even though I knew. Well, I don't know if I knew instantaneously, because I, I, in all honesty, I did buy into that to some degree, um, that whole idea. But then, you know, as you get older and you start getting challenged by specific policy issues and things like that, and I talk about this in the book, like specifically there were three A's. The first was apartheid, the second was AIDS, and the third was abortion. That really forced me to shift my identity um, and ask myself, what are my values, right? You know, what is this mask I'm wearing? Is it really something, you know, that's who I am? And it's not, you know, and so that's when I I, uh, saw the light. At U of M. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. If you are passionate about big ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Hello and welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today I'm talking to Curtis Chin and Dr. Rebecca Kinney about the Asian American experience in the Midwest. This is for both of you. Um, As we know, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw a rise across the U.S. in anti-Asian hate crimes. At the same time, in the last few years, we have increasingly seen more Asian American filmmakers, actors, and creators gain national and international attention. How do each of you make sense of this complicated and contradictory moment for Asian American representation? Well, to me, I don't know if I necessarily connect those two at the same time. I mean, as someone who works out in Los Angeles and Hollywood, the stats that I sort of think of are when I was a little kid, television shows needed about 30 million viewers to be renewed. When I broke into TV about 20 years ago, that number had fallen to about 10 million. Now, you only need three or four million to get a second season. And when you're looking at numbers like that, because of the exponential growth of our community, right, we can hit those numbers much easier. And so, therefore, in Hollywood, which is now also because of streaming, has gone from only 70 to 80 shows in production at any time to over 400, there's just a thirst for material. And when you're looking at smaller communities like Asian Americans or gays and lesbians, right, 
it's easier for us to now find more, you know, finding our stories, finding a space, because we don't necessarily need to create content that, that appeals to non-Asians. It's great if they do, but there's enough of us to actually sustain these projects and make them successful, right? And so I feel like we're just at hopefully the tip, the, the tip of the iceberg, right? Like we're just going to keep seeing more and more, you know, not just books, but TV shows, films, musical artists, and also the influence of Asia too. So I just think that's, that was just a natural evolution in the growth of our community and the changes going on in entertainment industry of what, what is considered um, a viable audience. In terms of the COVID thing, maybe that's raised some awareness and maybe, um, but I feel like that's more of a temporary thing, like it was a blip, you know. Even though that discrimination that we saw during that time period, you know, has been the same discrimination that we faced forever. I feel like this, the other factors influencing uh, the increase in Asian representation is um, much more sustainable and much larger. Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And um, I should note by saying I spent part of the pandemic in Seoul on a, a research fellowship in Seoul, South Korea. And so whenever I was looking at both news and culture coming out of the United States during this time, it was very contradictory in terms of, you know, the the, the racial panic around COVID-19 and you know, the racial rhetoric that was very reminiscent of rhetorics that we've heard since the late, you know, 19th century about Asian communities as diseased, as depraved, as vectors are carrying something that is unwelcome and different and foreign. And at the same time, you know, all of the the really kind of the surge of interest in Korean pop culture, for example, um, emerged around the same time. And so it really made me think of a couple things around that in that you know, there's always been this idea that for Asian Americans, um, our food, our culture has always been welcome and, and ready to be consumed and consumable. But there's, there's been this idea of, but our people, you know, as welcome and as as ready to be kind of incorporated into the fabric of the country is kind of one thought on that. And then in particular, with with my community partners in Cleveland, because of the impact on the restaurant industry in particular during the pandemic, you know, it was really hard times for many small business owners in um, in Cleveland's Asia Town, for example, in I'm assuming, you know, ethnic enclaves or Asian American spaces across the U.S., um, across the world in terms of folks who run service oriented small businesses like restaurants, like, you know, shops or salons. And so that was also really complicated to see this rise in the desire or the consumption of of popular culture related things, but the kind of reluctance of many people to patronize businesses that were owned and operated by Asian Americans. So I, I found it to be, at least looking from the outside, um, from my space in South Korea at that time, a really contradictory kind of experience or moment. You know, both of you in your work are, as we've talked about, really trying to complicate and change perceptions, right? That kind of maybe mass media versions of what does it look like to be Asian American? You know, what is what are Midwestern cities like in relationship to ethnicity? I want to come back to your memoir, Curtis, and talk a bit more about that and what inspired you to write that now, and what were some of the things you wanted your readers to take away? Well, when I first started writing the memoir, it really was a family story because, um, like I said, my family's been in Detroit since the late 1800s, but after my parents had that car accident, and uh, my dad passed away. 
my mom, we had to move her out to California, and slowly everybody left the area. And then when my siblings started having kids, I thought it was really sad that we have this new generation in our family that would know nothing about our lives here in the Midwest and how we had helped build up this area. And so I was really just writing stories for them. But then when COVID happened and George Floyd was murdered and the reporting of anti-Asian hate crimes was on the rise, I felt like I wanted to also be part of that conversation, right? You know, and I made documentaries about that, so it was a natural transition for me. Um, and so, you know, I, I started looking at issues of my racial identity, how what it meant to be Asian growing up in a very black and white world. What was that coming out process like? What was that coming out process like during the age of AIDS? You know, being Asian in the time of Vincent Chin. All these very, very specific things that happened in the 80s. You know, I wanted to be part of that conversation. I felt like um, our country's very divided right now. We have these little silos where people don't talk to each other. But Chinese restaurants are one of those few places where you can go in and see somebody from a different race, class, religion, sexual orientation. And if maybe you just leaned over one time and just asked the person next to you, hey, what are you eating? Maybe it's these small baby steps that we need to do as a country to start healing, right? Even just to be civil to each other. And so that's what I was thinking in writing the book. But now that I've been on the road and sharing it with audiences, I realize that there's an even more important thing as to why this book matters is I've had so many people come up to me afterwards. They're usually like the last people in line, and they share with me the, the pains and struggles they're going on. They're oftentimes very young Asian Americans, sometimes teenagers, who are having difficulty with their families, right? Not just the sexual orientation aspect, but the idea of working and being stuck working in a family business and really fighting with their parents all the time. And they break down and cry, you know, and I don't I don't know how to respond oftentimes because I'm I'm not a therapist, I'm not a professional, I'm not a parent. But I, I try to show compassion and empathy to them and I try to give encouraging words to them. I can't imagine the pain and struggles that they have to deal with on a day to day basis. But for them to say that that, you know, to thank me for writing this book that helps them feel like they're being seen and heard, it's just, it's just really powerful as a writer, you know, to feel like you know, that, that your book might be able in some small way save somebody, right? And so I feel like that's why we need more Asian American stories, and that's why we need to have Asian Americans telling these stories, because we know the intricacies. We know the specifics of it. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's why I'm on this book tour literally traveling everywhere, is that maybe there are people out there that do, you know, need to hear this and have been waiting for someone like me to come to their community. As a final question, any advice, speaking of young people, any advice for young people who are interested in maybe telling their own stories about their lives and communities? Any advice you'd want to give them? I think now more than ever, it seems like there's so many spaces for us to share stories and to share content and create content and not in that, you know, gross kind of content creation way, but in terms of thinking about um, just there's lots of places that people can tell their stories. And I think that I would encourage you, and I guess if I could go back to my younger self, I would encourage my younger self, you know, to say you have your experiences are valuable and important. And, you know, for every person who maybe grew up in the Midwest or grew up feeling like they were the only wherever they grew up, I think that it's this idea that while you might feel like the only as as I've gone through life and moved lots of different places, 
this idea of being the only is is more universal than we might think and that you know you'll find your people and just keep you know finding places that you can share your story finding places where you can hear other people's stories whether those are in a classroom or in a memoir like Curtis's or you know you never know where you might find your story but keep looking and um, there's other people like you out there uh, this advice is more for the people that want to pursue this as a career. I mean, I think writing is great for everybody. Everybody should do it. But for those that actually want to work and make their living at it, you're going to hear the word no a lot. Don't let that voice be your own. Always say yes to yourself. Always say that you can do this. You can believe in it, that your story matters. And then when you do hear a no from somebody outside, figure out how to turn that into a yes. When I was trying to sell my book, I approached 90 agents, right? 30 of them, you know, never even wrote back. 30 of them wrote back and said, thanks, but no thanks. 30 of them asked for a small sample. Maybe half of those asked for the full manuscript, but they ultimately all said no, you know, but I didn't give up, you know, and I just kept persevering. Believe in what you're doing, believe in your voice, believe in your story, and just figure out how to get it out there. Curtis, how can folks find you and your book? Um, the best way, well, the book is available everywhere. It's from Little Brown, so you can get it at, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookseller, probably even find it at eBay now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, in terms of following me, please go to my website at curtisfromdetroit.com. I actually put um, my film Vincent Who online for free for people to watch there, but you can also follow my tour and updates, uh, you know, from what I'm doing. But also Instagram at curtischin8. Thank you so much for joining us today, Curtis and Rebecca. Listeners can keep up with ICS happenings by following us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. This script was researched and written by Ali Sporing and Ahmed Bilal. Sound engineering was provided by Brendan Akatora, Phil Basket, and Marco Mendoza. <laughs>